Hey, I'm Brenda Romero, and you're listening to the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. Hello, and welcome back for the next episode of the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. I'm your host, Ben Mattis, and today I'm joined by Brenda Romero, a BAFTA award-winning game designer, Fulbright scholar, entrepreneur, artist, writer, CEO, and creative director. Spanning four decades, her work has encompassed titles across digital and board games, including the Wizardry and Jagged Alliance series, and titles in the Ghost Recon, Dungeons and Dragons, and Def Jam franchises. Currently co-founder and CEO of independent game developer Romero Games, we managed to catch up with Brenda in the midst of shipping a new game, Empire of Sin. Thanks for joining us, Brenda. Thank you. Maybe you could just uh, introduce yourself for our listeners. Hi, everybody. My name is Brenda Romero, and I am a game director at Romero Games. I am currently, geez, hours away from shipping Empire of Sin. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Uh, Well, almost thank you. (laughs) Uh, So let's see. I've been in the industry, I feel like, forever. Um, I think it's fair to say I'm a lifer. Uh, I have... I have no desire to do anything else for a living. I fully expect that I will retire as a game developer. And I think retirement just means I make what I want to make and release it when I want to release it. But I got into the industry as a kid. I was um, I was just 15 back in the 80s. In uh, my first job, this is obviously before the FAQ. Like, you, you couldn't download an FAQ for any of the games back then. So if people had a question, they had to call me. And I worked for a company called Surtex Software in my job, unbelievably, can you imagine this as a kid, play a game, memorize it, and get paid to answer questions. Right. And that's really what I did. From that point, I, I did, sure, I, I figured I'd go out and get a real job. But when I interviewed for that real job, it happened to be with IBM, I just thought, man, I'd really rather keep making games. Right. And that fateful decision, I'm still here. So... I've seen so many platforms come and go. I've seen mobile phones rise twice, you know, as a gaming platform. I mean, I remember when there was a huge divide between computer game makers and console game makers, like that was some massively different thing. I've seen, you know, games go through multiple controversies, um, you know, from they need to be classified as a as an illegal substance to the person who wanted to classify them being arrested for weapon sales you know it's i feel that would be certainly one one of the more memorable moments <laughs> it's been um while everything has changed every form of technology has changed and every genre has changed in some way shape or form and clearly many genres have been born there's some things i would say as a game designer that have remained the same They've remained the same from, you know, the mid-80s until today. Just those, what is the core of the player experience? What are the verbs? What does the player want to do? How do we reward the player? How do we give the player feedback? There are those constants through the Mm -hmm. whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, that's that's a wonderful sort of segue, I guess, into the second question. Um, You know, if if we look at games in the 80s and and we look at games today, as you said, there there are certain things that are very similar and and there are certain things that have 
well, that are very different, that have, have, have changed. I mean, maybe, you know, business model being sort of deeply intertwined into the core gameplay experience or into the core design is, is perhaps a, a change, an example Absolutely. of a change, right? So, you know, are there other sort of standout changes that, that come to mind? In particular here, I'm, I'm fishing maybe a little bit less for uh, kind of technology changes and maybe a little bit more for uh, sort of paradigm shifts in play or paradigm shifts for the player or for the game designer. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Some that spring immediately to mind are the advent of, well, multiplayer certainly we had even back in the arcades, right? But the shift toward multiplayer online, then Mm -hmm. massively multiplayer online. Mm -hmm. Then we even had sort of a foray, which still exists on, on, well, a lot on mobile games, which is asynchronous, massively um, multiplayer online. So every one of those things requires you to think quite differently as a designer. Like, like it's useful to take it back to D&D. So how would I, as a DM, have a game where I had a million different people playing? So that conceivably is something we can figure, figure out. But how would you do it if it was asynchronous play? And how do you mm-hmm. make sure the players can communicate back and forth and, forth and exchange the things they need to exchange? So each one of those requires the player to, or sorry, requires the designer to think quite differently about how they engage their players and what things the players can do and the feedback that we give to the players. I would also say from a design perspective, another interesting shift was just the performative nature of games. Oh, interesting. Like like we don't tend to think about games as performance objects. Um, And just forgive me for sounding like a, a little bit like a boring academic here. But we don't tend to think about them as performance objects. Certainly, if you watch somebody like my husband play Deathmatch, you're going to think about it as a performative object because yeah, he's quite or, performative or, when he plays. Or Twitch streamers these days or whatnot. Right. I mean- so that is, that's where we're getting to. And before, as game designers, we wouldn't be thinking like, okay, what, it, what are the key moments that we know people are going to put on YouTube? Right. What are the moments? What will we do in the game that will make our game, say, streamer-friendly? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you an example, in fact, from Empire of Sin. So I certainly would have allowed you to give your players, your characters' names in games before and to rename your characters. But in Empire of Sin, specifically, that rename is there for the gangsters because streamers requested it so that, that they could rename they could rename characters in the game after people who regularly watch their stream. Right. Donators or, or yeah. fa- fans or followers. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So, so those, so thinking about the game, not just how it is played, but how it is performed. Okay. Like that requires almost a whole separate, okay, let's have a separate meeting where we're going to talk about how the game functions as a performance tool. Right. And And I guess maybe then even as a sort of extension of that or taking that one step further, you know, I remember when playing a game meant you launched the game, you, you, you played the executable and then you shut it down and, and you were kind of done. I mean, maybe you went onto a website in order to find a strategy, but you weren't doing fan fiction, generally speaking, (laughs) you weren't trying to, you know, figure out lore in the games with 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 online communal groups you weren't theorizing about how to open secret door a so much outside of your kind of 
real life community of a couple of friends. The world of gameplay was sort of smaller. And these days, it seems like in some big games, I don't know, let's take, uh, well, the one that blew my mind this year was Blazeball. Did you hear about this thing? No, no, tell me. Oh, this was crazy. So the game of Blazeball is, it's a web browser game. I mean, it's like clicking buttons on menus and text and, you know, almost as basic as it gets. And somewhere along the way, a group of players on Discord started uh, sort of talking about the backstory of the characters on the teams, because it's not real baseball teams, it's fictional, right? right? So they start inventing backstories for these characters. And then that spun out into inventing backstories for the teams and the managers and the owners and, 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 and. And now, honestly, Blazeball is three quarters Discord server, one quarter website. Like it, I don't know the exact distribution, but it is played outside of the game almost more than it's played inside of the game, right? Do you see that as, have you lived that change? Is that something that you kind of are excited about or or, um, aware of? (laughs) I mean, I see that and it blows my mind. Well, it certainly blows my mind too, right? Like fan fiction, we've already seen, funny enough, some fan fiction for Empire of Sin and even some cosplay. And I will say that we do take that sort of stuff into account while designing. So here's how that character looks. What is unique about that look? We actually consult with somebody who does a lot of cosplay and says, oh yeah, if you added this, that, and the other thing or took this away, that character character would be far more appealing to the cosplay and fan community. Oh, that's cool. Um, So yeah, that is something we take into account. And I would say even in a larger sense, one of the unbelievably amazing things about where we are today, and I think even where we're heading in the future, like yeah, on, on Steam, they've just opened up uh, something to allow you to have beta access for people. Yes, yes, yes. Before, you would make a game and you would have like 40 testers and you would ship them the discs in like FedEx envelopes and then you would wait for their feedback. Mm-hmm. And once the game was out there, like you said, there's an executable, have fun, and you know the developers go on vacation or whatever, right? But now there's this whole cadence to you've released the game and the game usually isn't finished at that point in time. Well, I should, let me correct myself. The game is itself isn't an executable. It's not that it's not done, right? You are, you have a plan for games are really made to have long tails on them, right? Mm -hmm. So where are we going to go next? What's the next story? What's going to be the DLC that we come out with for this specific thing? And so people are thinking publishers and developers are thinking much more in terms of the long tail, I mm-hmm. think, than they ever, ever did. Yeah, And it is great that we have that accessibility, direct accessibility to players. Like, I have a Twitter account. I'm sure I'm going to get asked questions. Yep. You know, we have a Discord, right? And there's so many different ways that we can ask players questions and get feedback from those players. It's, you know, not just talking about the, you know, the telemetry hooks and that sort of stuff that we have in the background. But really finding out what players want, hearing from them, hearing them talk about the characters that they love, that sort of stuff, sure, we had access to it, but it all came through the mail. And how many people were going to be bothered right. Tiny to subset. write a letter? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm hearing two uh, sort of big changes there, you know, seismic shifts as well. So one is what some people typically call, you know, games as a service, right? Or, or, or games with live ops. So this idea mm-hmm. that 
the game launches is is really just the beginning of the journey and that then you're 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 iterating on it you're 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 making changes you're evolving it you're continuing to create content uh, whether it be seasonal packs or what have you and then the other thing that i'm hearing uh is this idea of sort of a player centric methodology of 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 production right where not necessarily you know they're the leads or anything like that but that you're able to speak directly to the players and and kind of a b test ideas through development almost with the players and kind of figure out what's resonating what's working with them and and then double down on the things that are um absolutely and as, as, yeah yeah and even just to that last point there um certainly something that has shifted and i'm curious to see in the future how it will evolve is the uh the concept of ur testing now i know ur testing didn't just show up in the last mm-hmm. however many years that you are testing has always been a thing but it's become commonplace in games i tend to advocate for the game is barely functional it's running they can tell that it is in fact a game mm-hmm. maybe maybe not much more than that but i want that game in front of people as soon as i can possibly get it in front of people i know that when i do that 95% of what they say is going to be wow this is in a horrible state it's barely functional <laughs> this is broken <laughs> this is extremely broken but what i want to hear about if those early days are what are they like what are they what what is appealing to them what's already hitting what things are they saying that they hope the game can do um because it it just it validates some of the design thoughts that we have and at least while we were working with paradox paradox has been phenomenal about you know giving us all kinds of access to UR. Great. Maybe let's just be explicit. You and I already have used a bunch of acronyms because we're in the industry, but oh, right. you are, you, you mean user, user research? research? I do. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And, and it, wow, we're going to spend the whole 90 minutes on just this one theme. Um, but would you agree that the longer you've been in the industry, the earlier players are getting access to games, the earlier oh, in the yeah. development process? Right. Yeah. It's like an inverse proportion, right? The, 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 the further we get in this industry and the more digital and the more connected, it's like the earlier people get access to stuff and the earlier shipping happens. And then the more the real work is kind of quote unquote post shipping. Absolutely. I, you know, I think that's very well said. The, there was a time when you would, it's just, you're done, you're done. Yeah. The game is shipped everybody's going on a vacation. And now you really are switching into live mode. And I would say mobile games really pioneered, mobile and Facebook games really pioneered that, well, why don't we put the game out? Why don't we do a broad scale user test, I guess, and put the game out earlier, you know, instead of like, well, we hope we're right. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I I do want to add, just when we're talking about my career, and while, let me see, 2021, Unbelievably, I will have been doing this for 41 years, which seems kind of ridiculous to have gotten away with it for this long. But the the benefit of having a long, there are many benefits to having a long career. One of the things that is important to me, though, is, is to try to really only reflect on some part of my experience. Okay. Because I think the things that applied, well, certainly the in the 80s and 90s, I would have, you know, the discipline that is necessary and um, and learned a lot about and had the opportunity to take in lots of games and, you know, hopefully learned a thing or two about le- being a lead and, and running companies. A lot of the stuff that applied to games, successful games then, simply doesn't apply anymore. Right. That's a great point. So I discount that sort of stuff. And I make sure that whoever, that I'm always working with people who are, that first of all, at the end of every year, 
I um, I love this because it's coming up. I have a three or four week window where I do nothing but play games, Ooh, and it's a full like workday, man. It's up at eight o'clock, and I'm you know I'm like there. I want to say it's an eight hour day, but it never is because I'm like just like all right, look, I'm just gonna play for another hour, and then it's two o'clock. You know this this drill. So first of all, just to make sure that I'm always playing the latest stuff, and then making sure that I have people on my team who I know do not have you know, 40 years experience. They might have five years experience or 10 years experience. But I just, I want to make sure that my head, like, you know, as as an example, like in the, in the eighties and nineties, it was totally fine to just kill you. Just, Mm -hmm. that's it. You made a mistake. You die. You deserve it. (laughs) The original Prince of Persia jumped into a spike pit. Yeah. You know, so that sort of stuff doesn't fly anymore. Um, so I think it's important, especially for people who have a lot of experience, that they know that the, the value of their experience is really the last 10, 15 years. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. So when we reached out to you initially, there was an angle that I was particularly interested in talking to you about, and you've touched upon both. And I'm sure we'll go deeper into both as we go. But I don't know a ton of digital game designers who may be have played in the analog space quite Hmm. as extensively as you have, and perhaps who have done that bridge with academia quite as extensively as you have. And and so I'm very interested in tying sort of both of those back into our conversations as we go. But let's just start by setting people up with, with analog, right? Because not necessarily everyone will be aware of that. So you worked on something called The Mechanic is the Message. Uh, It's fascinating. And in some ways, it's it's probably the most difficult work in your ludology for people to play, right? It's mm-hmm. it's not yeah. like they can just download it from Steam. And like I said, I, I do want to roll analog play into some of our other discussions. So can you tell people a little bit? Can you set up a little bit about Mechanic is the Message and what, what it is and what motivated you to work on that? Sure. So, well, the Mechanic is the Message is a series of six board games. And they're all based on extremely difficult moments in human history. And whatever you're thinking of is the most difficult moment. You're, there's probably a game in there for it. So I, I became fascinated with this, actually, when I was teaching. Mm-hmm. And it had to do with, I, I was out at a dinner with several other professors, and they were talking about this horrible thing having happened. There were three photography professors, it turned out. This horrible thing happens, and the issue they were talking about is, do you take the picture or not? Right. And so... I just flipped that into my language. Do I make the game or not? And then it occurred to me that games really were in this purely entertainment box. Mm -hmm. The games didn't try to, especially at the time, tackle difficult subject matter. And then it further occurred to me that every other medium did. There's, if you think about famous photographs, for instance, like really famous photographs, odds are a collection of those at least are about difficult moments. And so in books, like we have, you know, there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of books about that are, that are about books, movies, you name it. But games, we were in this box where if it's not super fun, get out. Mm-hmm. And I knew, I just believed that games are more capable than any other medium, really, um, because not only could they tell it or show it, they could let you in some sense experience it. And these difficult moments to have true, we'll say true tragedy on scale. Mm-hmm. where it's human-on-human human tragedy, it is necessary for there to be a system. You can't have, you know, a million humans versus another million humans and accidentally something goes, like, that can't That's happen. Right. And so I, 
So I decided, that's it, I'm, I'm going to make games about this. I'm going to try to make them as board games. Because I, I feel like you can, you can obfuscate things behind code. Like I could tell you I'm rolling a D10, but just give you a seven and you'll believe me. That's right. So I- um, At least for the first six rolls. <laughs> yeah. yeah, then you'll be like, hey, what's going on here? So, so I decided to make a series of board games. Um, and I picked the, uh, picked the six events that I wanted to cover. And I never intended to talk to anybody about this. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to see if I could do it. Like if there's somebody who's a musician who's listening, clearly they have written songs that were not, they were not mandated to put those online. Mm-hmm. I am sure that you have recorded things that are private just for you. I, writers do it all the time. Um, game designers, every game designer has at least 20 ideas, at least 20 ideas that have yet to see the light of day. So for me, this was a design exercise. I wanted to see, could I do this? Could I capture and express difficult emotion in a board game the same way that photographers did? So I um, eventually I went to a conference called uh, Project Horseshoe. And at Project Horseshoe, I mean, sh- you know game developers, right? Like, here's how every conversation with every group of game developers goes. Hey, how you doing? Great to see you. Haven't seen you since last, whatever. What are you working on? What are you working on? Exactly. What are you working on? And then everybody says, oh, I can't say. Mm-hmm. And m- rarely you'll get somebody who will say, oh, I just released so-and-so. Or they've just announced it. But almost always, it's, I can't talk about it. But me, who is working on these six weirdo board games, I could talk about it. So Steve Moretzky was there and he's been in the industry forever as well. And Steve said, well, you've, you've got to talk about these things. Like nobody's done something like, so you have to talk about it. So he says kind of a booming voice, right? And so I'm like, okay, I'll do it. Now here's the weird, I guess, and I, I don't know whether it's weird or not, but I promised him I would do it. And when you make a, when your life is really around rules, mm-hmm. right? Like a promise is a rule. So I- Yeah, you say so, it and it's real. Oh, yeah, so now I've got to, so this this conference invited me to speak. It was a really small conference at the time. It's it's gotten bigger now. I talked about uh, Shiakan Lot which is uh, my game about my family's history here in Ireland. Uh, I talked about Train. Um, I talked about City Soleil, which is a game about day and night violence in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and a couple of the other games in the series. And this person who was in the audience who happened to, their personal lived experience happened to be at the intersection of three of these games. Oh, geez. And they, they started to cry. They left the room. I thought, oh my God, I knew I shouldn't have done this. Like, I believe the games are capable of this. This doesn't necessarily mean that we're ready for this, right? Like when you say want to play a game, you're not thinking like if I say want to go to a movie, it could be anything from Schindler's List to something that's, you know, quite right, obvious. There's a sort of understanding that you might be in for something heavy or you might be in for something right. light, but with games nah, generally right. at that time. Yeah. So I um so anyway, I I eventually this person comes back in and they gave me, uh, you know, they gave me a hug and said, my God, how moving these games were and thanked me so much for making them. And they'd never seen anything like this. So it ends positively, but not, but, and I don't know, a few hours pass and a friend says, my God, you're on then the escapist. Oh, wow. Excuse me. And so, yeah, that was a great blog. So I look at the escapist and yeah, sure. There's an article that, you know, board game can make you cry. And immediately, Immediately it started. How could you make games about these things? Why would you do this? You know, all kinds of stuff. But then there was this great, this singular comment. I, I will always thank him for this. I, I've known him for years, but uh, David Jaffe, I won't, I don't know whether I can swear on this podcast. So I'll, uh, as I can. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll swear for now and we'll edit right. if we have to. All right. So, so David <clears throat> said, You made this game fucking cool. <laughs> and for some reason, 
some reason, that was the thing that let me know, like, okay, like, Validation. I, because I had, I had felt before then, like, holy, I'm, oh my God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose my game developer card. Not, not obviously like we have game developer cards, but right, you know what I mean? Some sort of blacklist or something. Yeah. And, and instead it was like, instead what I got universally from game developers was, wow, this is, this is pushing the edge. And I guess to, I think to me, it was just something I wanted to see if I could do. Steve sort of pushed me to talk about it, but I wasn't expecting them to go. And then I ended up taking them to the Wall Street Journal, uh, showing them at MIT, you know, and at this point in time, they've been, you know, they've been all over the world. So it's certainly, I can't say that I certainly never set out to say like, that's it. I'm going to, I'm going to change board games and I'm going to change what games could do. I wanted to try a personal experiment and that personal experiment escaped. Mm -hmm. And now I'm proud of them. I think it's probably the work for which I will be best known. Well, I mean, you can't, if you search, I know this for a fact, if I search for your name, Train is like in the top three hits, right? I mean, Wizardry and Train, those are the two things that come back very, very commonly. I remember reading a blog about Train and thinking, you know, wow, I I haven't actually played it, but I remember thinking, wow, that's intense. I think I was pretty deep into Mouse at the time. I took a really memorable class in university called the history of the holocaust had a really really good teacher and so i was deeply engaged in that world and educated myself about all of that and i remember reading about train and thinking that's new i've not seen that before um and i think you know you can probably trace the line between train and this war of mine right and and many games of its ilk which are interestingly enough now becoming you know educational material inside of university classes Absolutely. at least in poland right and 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 more so And so there's so many places we could go here. I mean, we could talk about the role of games in academia, right? Because we just planted that seed. We could talk about the future of whatever, serious games or or, or games as educational material or as games that can make you feel or think. but I, I, you know, and I'm happy to, to to talk about both of those in just a minute. But I, I do want to talk a little bit about the role of a game designer okay. because I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people have an assumption about what that means, right? Oh, the game designer, you made the game. That's what a game designer is. It's all in your head, and I think you have examples of that being the case. Train. You probably have some examples where. Part of that is true, right? So can you talk a little bit about what is a game designer for you? What is game design? What makes a great game designer? Sure. Um, I mean, geez, a game designer, you, as you, you said it well. Um, it, in fact, if we just, if we take a look at the long history of games, I mean, a game designer, particularly in the early days, a game designer was, uh, was the programmer, was the artist, was the audio person at the very beginning of games. And we also see some of that now coming back with people like, say, Lucas Pope, who is mm-hmm. you know, sort of this virtuoso um, who can do all of those things. And I would say, you know, we also saw some of that in Jason Rohr's work and, you know, other um, other art game creators. Mm-hmm. I guess the game designer at the very base level comes up with an idea for the game uh, or maybe even put better a possibility space where mm-hmm. a game could be made. Mm-hmm. Where, where play can happen is mm-hmm. probably, I like that. I haven't said that before, so I'm, I'm trying to think of how bought in I am to my, <laughs> to my own definition there. But yeah, I think the game designer is trying ultimately to find a possibility space where play can happen. There are the day-to-day realities of a game designer, and they often are living in spreadsheets. 
they are writing design documents or, you know, day to day, here's what we're going to do with the build, depending on whether they use design docs or not. Here's what we're going to do with the build to move it to the next step forward. And game design over the years has specialized as well. You know, if I look at my own team, I have a principal combat designer. Mm-hmm. I have a, sort of an all around game designer who can help any other, any of the functional system design leads. I have a strategy game designer whose entire goal is just looking at the strategy layer. Then an economic designer who is, you know, making sure that things are balanced so that there's enough money coming in compared to going out. And there's always a challenge. So the bigger the games are, the more specialized those designers have to be. master of spreadsheets. <laughs> I, I do think my favorite aspect of game design, and I think this is the, and not every game designer needs to be able to do this either. But my favorite aspect of game design is, you know, I've got a game going out the door, like I said, you know, literally hours. Um, I've got a game going out the door, but I'm I'm now at this phase where I'm playing with an idea in the back of my head. And that's what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. This is a possibility space where stuff could happen, mm-hmm. where you can see the potential for play and critically that has not happened before. Oh, interesting. Um so the, whether it is the intersection, like if you smashed this game into this game into this game, what would happen? Or if you took this idea, like we could take Prohibition. So that's the, the mm-hmm. large theme around my game. So if we took Prohibition, you could make, and we just tried on, you know, we sort of, you know, play dress up is a terrible term, but I'm running with it because I haven't got another one. Yeah, um, you're playing with the imagination space, Yeah, right? so I, you know, let's try on FPS. Let's try on strategy game. Let's try mm-hmm. on Empire Builder, right? So we try all of those different things. You eventually get something that feels like it fits. And this would be true with my analog games as well. I learn as much as I can about something. Mm-hmm. Okay. I will circ- And so now I've got this, in, like, let's just say I've got this sort of giant globe of information of things I know about the game I want to make. Now I'm trying to circle it to find out where you come in. Like, where mm-hmm. does the player, where do I get the player in to the game? So... If I take my my current game as an example, with you so there's 14 mob bosses and you're you're in Chicago running Prohibition, you could be potentially like you could be a customer, you could be playing the cops. I could have you play both sides. Mm-hmm. You could play just one gangster against all the others. You know, it could be multi. There's a load of different ways that we can come into that. And mm-hmm. so then, as a designer, you know, what is that one core experience that I want players to have? Um, and I'm funny enough, I'm going to quote Jaffe again, because I, I, I won't, I, <laughs> I'll spare people how he described it, though it's great. Um, he, Jaffe, you know, he, he, I've heard him talk, I like the way when he talks about the core of a game, that you can change anything you want, but do not come for the core of this game. That's I will right. protect I've, the core of this Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I will protect that. this with, you know, like, yeah. he has some very colorful words for it. But I... I think um, defining the core is important. And if I go back to the beginning of Empire of Sin and you know, back to even other games before then, the fundamental job of a game designer, I believe, is to know when to say yes and no as ideas suggest themselves. So mm-hmm. all this would be cool, but does it make the core of the game stronger? If yeah. I pull something out of the game, does it make the core of a game weaker? And so really knowing what that razor is um, and which side of the razor something falls on and then at the very beginning uh, of, of Empire of Sin is knowing when to ask for, for help in bringing the team in. So okay. our first full team meeting, well, I mean, was it, we've got a bigger team now, but the very first team meeting that we had for Empire of Sin on day one was a whiteboard leaning against the wall and me saying, le- basically leading a D&D session. All right, we're in Chicago. 
1920. Prohibition's just started. What do you want to do? Who are you? Who are you playing? What yeah, are you, and there's what rules are, coming what are the from verbs? there. Yeah, it's amazing. I I hear you talk about you know game designers kind of creating the possibility space, and and I imagine you could probably see your 12 year old self on the street with a bunch of friends saying, "What do you want to play?" And you coming to the table saying, "Let's play." I don't want to play cops and robbers. We always play cops and robbers. Let's play. Uh, cowboys versus aliens, whatever. You're, you're defining the possibility space and everyone goes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, yeah. And then boom, away you go. It's 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 imagination games. In, in some ways, I, I would not be at all surprised if there's a strong correlation between great game designers and the kids on the block who are kind of yelling the loudest about what, what possibility space should, should make up the game that we're playing in any given day. I, there's probably some connection there. Oh, I'm sure. Um, but it makes me want to ask you again uh, on the subject of the future of entertainment. It makes me want to ask you about digital play versus analog play. And do you have any theories about what's happening there? I mean, the question I wrote here is, is play becoming increasingly digital? Will tomorrow's kids still play tag outside, right? Um, do you have any thoughts? What do you, what do you think's going on there? Um, I I do think kids will play tag outside. I know they still are playing tag outside. Like I can, if I look out my window, there's a green area across from me and there's kids out there every day after school playing around. I do think a lot of kids, you know, when I look at the, 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 my time growing up, the things that I did on Saturdays and Sundays, the things that my own kids don't do on Saturdays and Sundays, that they can't wait to get home and play whatever game that they're playing um, with their friends and, you know, it's online, that they don't have that much real-world social interaction, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I even hesitate to say that, right? Because who's to say to them, I have friendships that I have maintained exclusively through the internet. Absolutely, People that me I, too. That I have not seen in years. And just because we might be talking or, you know, conversing in some chat program or another, probably is no different than if we were playing Battlefield together. Yeah, right? sure. So I do think kids will still do that. I don't think games are a fad, right? Mm-hmm. I in in my early career, I do still remember people saying, "Oh, yeah, this is a fad. They're not going. Nobody's going to be. You know, these are business machines fundamentally, and people are not going to be spending thousands of dollars to play video games." Well, it turns out they absolutely will. Mm-hmm. I feel like the nature of play has changed. The nature of digital entertainment, even even where digital entertainment collides, say with physical entertainment like if you if you consider rides like the Harry Potter ride mm-hmm, that's at mm-hmm. Universal right there's there's obviously quite the blend there and and I think we're going to see more of that actually like entertainment spaces that people go to that are a blend of computer enabled play digitally enabled play and physical and a physical experience whether that is audio um, feel, you know, a tactile stuff mm-hmm. like we're, we're actually take, obviously with VR and AR, some of that is already happening. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the future of entertainment and even the future, if not just future of entertainment, the future or the future of play, I mean, the future of TV, you know, if mm-hmm. we look at like, geez, this would be interesting. We can get people, we can get people to change the outcome, you know, and that was like, even though games have been doing that for what feels to me like a hundred years, it was huge news when it happened on TV. Um, books were starting to see, like I actually caught um, in, a, in a recent memoir, there was actually this sort of choose your own adventure portion in the middle of it. Like 
Yeah. Yeah. It's like, here's, what do you think that I did? I did one of these two things, not me, but I did one of these two things and you were, you were flipping back and forth across the pages. And that was also like, wow, this is incredibly revolutionary, except it's not because, you know, we did it much earlier, but I'm seeing games making tremendous headway in education and healthcare, right? So I think digital games are changing the way we are doing a lot of things, Mm -hmm. not just play. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, that's really cool. So we were talking about um, the future not, of video games, not just impacting the future of play, but you know, impacting lots of other things. And and I've I've hinted about getting to academia. I will in just a second. I want to stay on play for just one more minute. When games started, when I first got used to games or introduced to games, the f- the first big game that I really remember catching my attention and being like a, a strong object of desire would have been the original NES Super Mario Brothers. I think that was mm. the first one where I was like, I have to have it, right? And, you know, every penny for the year and a half or whatever it took to buy the NES and buy the game I saved in order to buy that. Games were really about creating a fantasy world that we couldn't experience in real life, right? In real life, you play tag and hide and go seek. In games, yeah. you're the you know emperor of the universe. You're the demon slayer. You're the you know wizard or whatever. What I find fascinating now is that more and more, you know, if you go on YouTube or you go on, you know, Twitch or or whatnot, you're seeing physical play patterns, tag, hide and go seek, floor is lava, being played out in these digital games that could be all about fantasy, right? It could be about fantasy, but it's also a game with a really huge possibility space, and when given a choice, a lot of players are saying, yeah, I'm going to do that physical stuff, but I'm going to do it in here, right? Yeah. Let's play tag in Minecraft. We're it. If we kill you, you lose. Go. Yeah. Right? I mean, that, that I find really interesting. And do you think that trend is continuing? Do you see hints of that growing? Uh, you know, will we increasingly um, inside of games, you know, live out? think, you know, do things that we could do in the real world, but that they're somehow just made better, more fun, more engaging because it's digitally augmented. And then, so I guess the extension of that is like how deep down that metaverse, you know, rabbit hole do you think humanity will be in 50 years? Yeah, it's uh, fundamentally games are, you know, you talk about playing tag, right? Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. many games are just that, or they're a game, um, so many games boil down to territorial acquisition right? or resource management. Like at their very base, you shake all the narrative off. uh, That's what they boil down to. In fact, most games, like all the capture the flag stuff, it's territorial acquisition. Whether it's one person or it's a hundred people or it's two teams of people, it is still territorial acquisition. Um, All empire builder games, all strategy games boil down to resource management and acquisition um, and territorial management. So I I feel that computers have an advantage over reality. Well, and digital has Mm -hmm. an advantage over reality. And that reality has certain time periods which are acceptable to do these things. So, for instance, you cannot go start a game of tag at 3 o'clock in the morning unless you want the cops showing up. Odds are. Right. Um, also, I feel like we we outgrow tag without a narrative. Like, I truly cannot imagine how much wine it would take for me to get a group of my friends, 
a group of all my friends. All the wine. <laughs> all the wine, right? We're going to go play tag tonight, right? Um, now I'm thinking about it. It actually would be fun, but I can't imagine that I'd, that I'd get that off the ground. Um, so, so first of all, games are accessible anytime, anywhere, mm-hmm. no matter what you're doing. Yeah. Um, they do not require the things, they do not require us to get dressed up, to run, to go out and do those things. So it's, it is minimum effort for, for maximum return. So like, even just like, if you've, if you know of any professional first person shooter players, their, their mouse is, man, it's precisely, you know, it's precisely tuned to they're barely moving a molecule, right? But they're halfway across the screen. It's near, it's it's hard to control. And that maximum output for minimum input is something that games excel at. Now, I, I do see how games periodically come back to a, let's go out into the real world. Let's go you know whether it whether whether it is exercise or a game that is a game that is that because of the very nature of it it requires you to go out and do things that's been cyclical much like VR has been cyclical um and a lot of times the, now I'll see AR tied in with mm-hmm. all of that as well hmm. you've heard the term signal booster it, it it's it's trending the last few years what was going through my mind when you were just talking is games are a signal booster for everything digital games right it, it's it's tag but more um oh, it's learning but more uh you know it's action but more and so you know it doesn't mean that the physical space is the physical thing is no longer needed but if we look at digital as a signal booster we can make it more more fun more engaging more entertaining more whatever by wrapping that thing in a layer of digital games and digital play it allows us also to do things that we might not I mean, I'm stating being blindingly obvious that we can do things that we couldn't do, and it it affords us an opportunity to meet people we could not otherwise meet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I've I have loads of of synchronous, sorry, asynchronous games going where I don't know who's on the other side, you know, but I, but I I have you know I could play these games like ten minutes here, five minutes there if I'm having coffee. I don't know who's on the other side, but I do have that that connection, which is, mm-hmm. you know, I think more important now than ever. Um, also, it's it's fun to do things in games that we we can't do or would be arrested for doing in real of life. Course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, you know, yeah. like blowing things up is in in a game if it's done well, man. That's super satisfying. Um, but obviously, I you know I can't do that. I can't do that. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure I can. If you know, I'm willing to pay some ridiculous amount of money to go someplace and blow stuff up, but. It's cheaper and easier in a game. Yeah, it's a lot cheaper and easier. I do remember seeing there's some place, I think, in the Nevada desert. I knew there would be. That specializes in like, you know, stag parties and that kind of thing. And like, they'll literally rent you a tank and allow you to like fire off around. And so you get all your guys together and you fly out to Nevada and you get in this tank and you fire around and it's like... $200,000 $200,000 or and, something And like you that. have to fly, <laughs> and you have to fly all the way over there. Yeah, it's yeah. insane. Okay, let's do it. Let's talk about academia. Okay. So uh, obviously you've been involved in academia through much of your career, and we've talked a little bit now about games as a sort of signal booster, so it's like X but more. Mm. Can you share some thoughts about how you feel academia has fed modern game industry, like how it has influenced games and conversely, how games have influenced academia? Sure. I mean, let me give you an example of how academia has influenced games. So a lot of times we'll hear developers say things like they don't even have the latest consoles. How can they possibly, you know, and sort of 
sort of talked down their nose. But things like Bruce Naylor in the BSP, that came directly out of a white paper. And we would not have first-person shooters be the way they are if it hadn't have been for that. Mm-hmm. The best programmers I know are combing through that kind of stuff. And it really is that research that that drives these things forward. I would say there's there is a now that we actually have game programs in colleges, which we didn't for ages, there's an opportunity for games and uh, with the game industry and academia to work together to, well, whether it's training students or to exploring new ways to play, even exploring new platforms to play on. Like, mm-hmm. for instance, if I came up, let's just say I came up with an idea for a game that could be played with a wearable that mm-hmm. that I'm also going to, I have no idea, I'm making this up as I go, so this Those could get rapidly ridiculous. Yes. But I'm I'm going to pitch a game that has a wearable, everybody else around me also has a wearable, but I don't know who they are, and something, something, something. Uh, and the winner goes to Nevada and blows up a tank or whatever, or drives a tank and blows I'm stuff in. up. Now, I told you it was going to get ridiculous, so it did. The thing is, is because the game industry is the industry and mm-hmm. not the game art movement or the game research community, I might have difficulty getting funding for my idea, even mm-hmm. if it didn't end ridiculously. However, with research, people can be looking into very small niche problems, niche problems that might not necessarily have a big audience that's going to pay this back. But the rewards of that sort of stuff, the rewards of that research, the things that come out of it, those kind of things will then feed into the larger industry. Mm-hmm. Also, I think, you know, people, are, oh gosh, I even have a better one. An unbelievable example of, um, of how academia helps the industry is games, for instance, like Genova Chen's Flow, mm-hmm. uh, which was a master's thesis, or Portal, also a student right. project, yeah. or um, the original MUD actually was released by British Telecom and was a master's thesis. So the very first multiplayer online world was a result of a college project. So many of wow. these things come out one. of like, when the pressure is, when the pressure for, for you, let's say as a student, is on find something cool nobody's done, that takes the pressure off from we, we have massive ROI, you know, that we need to hit, mm-hmm. right? And it changes your focus. Like when I was making my board games, my focus was just on, can I do this? Can this mm-hmm. be done? And, I, and I've made literally one one of each, and none of them are for sale. So I had mm-hmm. none of those other concerns. I, yeah. I wasn't worried about, you know, ESRB ratings on them or anything like that. So the academy versus the industry gives an opportunity for people to explore. Um, in my case, and, you know, going back to when I first started, there were no books. Well, that's not true. There was one book, Chris, um, oh my good, Chris Crawford's Balance of, not Balance of Power. Um, that's the game. Chris Crawford's, I think it was The Art of Game Design. Okay. There's one book and there's nothing else. So I'm working full time, flat out as a game designer until 2006, I think, from the 80s all the way till then. And so many books have been published, but I have no time to sit and of read course. these books. Right. right. And so when I saw a job open up, I thought, this is, this is incredible. So let me get this straight. You will pay me to just talk about having made games, <laughs> which seemed even slightly more ridiculous than pay me to make games. 
so I did. I, uh, I, that gave me an opportunity, the first opportunity I had had in my career to sit back and ask questions, like to ask questions and have deep conversations around why is this fun? Why did that evolve to be fun? Why do players care? Um, to read books that had been written, like, you know, a few of my favorites, like um, there's a, a great book called The Art of Failure that uh, Jesper Yule wrote or Theory of Fun. That's yeah, by Raph Koster. Yeah, I was just going to say Raph's Theory of yeah, Fun. Yeah, so really many great one. books. And so I read them and I read them again and again and again. I, I still read Theory of Fun once every single year. Um, and I, I feel now that they're with the game courses, uh, game, well, they would be called courses in Europe, but, but game programs. Students now have a a more direct way into the industry because they are learning. Hopefully, if those those uh, colleges are paired with some game developers or have a game development advisory board, they come into the industry far more knowledgeable than they otherwise would have. Of course, just knowing about the processes. So I, I think that that's been that's been a, a tremendous advantage. So there's a lot of talk there about um, academia feeding the industry. And one of the things that I'm noticing is, so we talked earlier about gas games as a service. Yeah. And I would say maybe the last sort of 10 years have begun to give rise in gap game as a platform. Um, You know, Minecraft is a really Mm -hmm. good example of that. Roblox, I think, is another really good example of that. Some could argue to a certain extent, maybe even Fortnite is beginning to get there as well. Interestingly enough, these are all games that, you know, have serious sort of metaverse aspirations as you know lining up to something we talked about earlier but one of the things that seems really interesting to me is that you now sort of see um these games somehow feeding maybe not academia but education right Mm -hmm. you know minecraft education version you know lots of courses lots of classes sort of being taught inside of these games in whole or in part. Now, some of that is pandemic related, but some of that is just to make the classes more engaging and interesting to, you know, a modern audience. So do you see any trends uh, sort of on the horizon whereby you think games might be used increasingly to, to educate and to kind of feed the other way, whereby it's the industry feeding education as opposed to education and academia feeding the industry. I do, and I think we are seeing some of those some of those things on the horizon, as you mentioned. You know, Minecraft and, and the different games that are going into the classroom. Um, I mean, it is a challenge, right? Because games at this point in time, most of the funding is toward games uh, as an games as entertainment, not games as education. And even if we look at some of the, the games that people may have considered educational or, or which are educational, like my, I played civilization endlessly. So CivRev is sort of my, my comfort food Mm -hmm, of games. mm -hmm. And so my daughter learned about world leaders through, uh, through CivRev, you know, she knew who these people were. Now she knew what, 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 the team at Firaxis wanted her to learn That's about right. those world leaders and not really the, you know, the, the depth of, of what she could learn uh, about them. But nonetheless, those, it, it opened the door, we'll say. Mm-hmm. I think what has piqued a lot of people's interest is that when we, we consider complex subject matter, like let's just say the periodic table of elements, which isn't terribly complex, but let's just consider that. And students stare at that and it's just, 
No. Is, yeah. is it going to sink in? No. Like you have to commit yourself unless you have a deep underlying passion for chemistry. It's like, how am I going to remember all this? But yet the same child could tell you a hundred Pokemon like that oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. without an issue, right? And so, all their stats and all of their you know right. strengths and weaknesses and all of that. A lot of times when I'm talking to kids about game development, of course they want to grow up and make games for a living. Yeah. And I might bring up the, might say even like a great field for you to go into is programming. Like right. worst case scenario, you will fail out into a highly paid IT career. <laughs> oh, poor um, you. <laughs> yeah, poor you, right? And they'll say like, oh, but I don't know, you know, I'm no good at math, it, which is generally not true. The, the And I'll say to them, how many people know what an exponential progression is or a logarithmic progression? Nobody will raise their hands, or maybe one kid will. And then I'll say, so experience points and experience levels, right? How many points you need to learn, you know, that usually goes along an exponential scale. Your levels, however, go along a, a logarithmic scale. And so teachers, of course, are hearing this and they're like, wait a minute, so this kid has no problem with the math in World of Warcraft. Right. But but has an issue. So is it a matter of how we are presenting these things? How can those things be pre- presented in such a way that it will will fire kids' minds? Mm-hmm. Or even like if I take in my own household, this was a problem for which he got grounded. I will add, um, uh, my son fell asleep in math class. Uh, just he said it was boring. He just couldn't couldn't stay awake. This same child will stay up till four o'clock in the morning playing Stellaris. <laughs> so, so why, what is Stellaris doing that his math text isn't, you know? And I think there's a lot of, now that said, I don't necessarily think that we have to make math um, super fun. And nor do I think it's the job of the game industry or academics to do that. But I do think that we can learn from one another, that we could make some of the learning concepts more visible in games. And likewise, we could make some of the things that students need to learn um, more fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's happening in small places here and there. Okay. And do you think that's increasing? Yeah. Do you think we're seeing more of it? Yeah. Okay. I do. I, I do. And I think part of the reason is, is because as, as the literacy, just as the world gets older, um, I guess the, li- the game literacy in Absolutely. educators is higher. Yep. So I can't even imagine rocking into school. I mean, when I was going to college and I said I had a job lined up with IBM, for goodness sakes, and I said, I'm going to keep making computer games. So just what am I doing? I'm yeah. a bright student throwing my yeah. future away, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm glad yeah, I didn't well, I mean, listen in, to those teachers. In in five years, there will be, or whatever, some a few years, there will be you know teachers entering the workforce who came out of Gen Z, who, who, who grew up with a cell phone in their hand, right? They yeah. grew up playing Pokemon Go. They grew up playing Fortnite. They grew up with Minecraft, right? And so there will be teachers for whom they lived the experience of theoretical mathematical concepts being made real yeah. through its applications in games. It won't be something that they read on a blog somewhere and they're like, oh, that's neat. I'll try that out. They'll have lived it and experienced it themselves, which means, you know, theoretically, they'll re-communicate that to their charges, uh, you know, with with an enthusiasm that comes from having lived the benefits of it, right? And, and so it does sort of feel like a bit of a snowball that can't help but pick up momentum, as you said, as as gaming literacy kind of increases across all quadrants, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I do feel like the thing, whatever that thing is, you know, for thinking about where we've come from and where we're going, 
that thing that you know, you've mentioned the metaverse several times, that's not really there yet. For, for this to work well, there needs to be something that will receive these teachers, mm-hmm. teachers who don't need to know how to code in Lua or C++ or whatever. We don't have that in our game experiences yet. If you choose to come into my game experience, you're getting on my rails. Yep. Even if my rails are massively multilinear, you're getting on my rails and you're going to my 20 end game experiences or whatever it is, or you're coming into my virtual world where you will use in my possibility space where you will use my possible things. Mm-hmm. I think maybe the closest that we have is Minecraft in creative mode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know, really what is necessary to go that, to that next level is something that will enable teachers to create that space where their learning materials or what they want kids to learn could be there. Because right now it's still very much like you could learn about, you could learn about war through Battlefield or Call of Duty, but that's what, you know, that would be what EA or DICE wants you to see about that's that. Right. Yeah. Which is true in movies as well. You know, that's what Steven Spielberg wanted you to see about Saving Private, Private Ryan. Ryan. Yeah. We don't yet have that open space. That Whatever that is, it does not yet exist in games. Um, it can exist to an extent in tabletop. Mm-hmm. Like we can, we, I could walk into a teacher's room, and, and I in fact have with my, I have this ridiculously large bag of game bits. And that game, that bag of game bits is a world of possibility. We can make right. games you, about You can do anything, anything with it, yeah. Yeah. Have you, um, do you follow at all uh, developments in machine learning and AI and, and that sort of space? Does that interest you? It does. It does interest me. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it interests me. It interests me in the way you would expect it to interest right. a game designer, which have is... You, uh, have you played AI Dungeon or with the, the replica app slash game on the iPhone? Have you played with either of those yet? No, but that sounds amazing. Try AI Dungeon. It's really interesting. And it plays, well, so, you know, uh, DeepMind and, and various people have been pushing the state of the art for some years now uh, in terms of um Text, right? Text is 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 a big area for for AI and deep learning. It it's easier than some other areas like maybe image recognition or you know video recognition or that kind of thing. Uh, there was a big breakthrough this year. Um, they call it the GPT three, and it's this just like massive, massive, massive model of um, English language text that has been trained uh, on this general purpose text model, and it's being used for really crazy things because it has almost complete awareness of like almost every sort of piece of text on the internet has been fed into this model. So you can ask it about recipes and you can ask it about travel and you can ask it about sex and you can ask it about anything and it'll respond, you know, relatively intelligently. I mean, certainly for me, it passes the Turing test, but that's not saying much. Um, and people are using this in really interesting ways. And one of the ways that really caught my attention was uh, this uh, app called AI Dungeon. I don't know necessarily that it's using GPT-3, but it's uh, it's the DM. And it's not a DM with a confined set of rules. It's the DM where anything is possible. You can literally say, uh, I rip all my clothes off and run around the room naked screaming like a banshee. And it'll play that back to you in a relatively credible way. It won't say... North, east, west, or south. 
It'll say like, oh, your uh, ladies in waiting enter the room and look at you askance. They wonder no if way. you're okay. Yeah, it's really, really rich. It's it's a DM, you know, uh, it's a DM and it's it's not a bad DM and it can be multiplayer. So you and I can both be players and the DM is AI. Um, Replica is a chatbot. It's nothing more than a chatbot, but it's it's her. I don't know if you've seen the movie Her, but it, mm-hmm. it's fantastic. Right? It's that, uh, but it's text instead of, you know, audio. But you talk to this chatbot about anything and your relationship grows with this chatbot as you do and you unlock new games that you can play with it and new possibility spaces that you can explore. And the thing that I keep on coming back to with both of these experiences and and many more is that AI can become a co-author of your experience, right? Where it's not it's not determining what you want to do, but it's collaborating with you. And because, you know, speech recognition from an AI point of view is more or less a solved problem. I'm imagining a space where teachers are in Minecraft and saying, I want a mountain here because I want to teach about tectonic plates or geography or topography or topology or like whatever, like whatever the the subject matter is. And instead of click, 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 or instead of download the mod, okay, install the mod, okay, hold on, fine, okay, search through the object packs, you know, whatever. It's just mountain there, diggity, diggity, dick, done. Okay, great. No, it's too high. Make it shorter. Biggity, biggity, book. So I'd love to have a follow-up podcast with you in a year or whatever, and we can just talk about where AI is going and how that's influencing games and how that's influencing. (laughs) I know one thing that it's doing, like, with design, and I guess it's, it, you know, especially at the game director level, there's usually, you, you raise, you're, you're looking for a new project once, you know, once every, depending on your, this, your, the, the, your launch cycle, you know, every two, three, four years, whatever's happened in that time, you're, you're turning your, your head toward it. Mm-hmm. And machine learning is absolutely one of the things that has my major attention. Right, right. And I, if we go back to like something like, say, Chrono Trigger, mm-hmm. where everybody was like, oh my God, it knew that I did that thing, that I, you know, that I I gave her back the ring and people's minds were blown over that, right? That was so small compared to what if we really had the computer watching how you play? Yeah. And if it changes the game dynamically based on that and truly, truly dynamic, Mm-hmm. Um, because right now we can say like, okay, well, if the player did, here's 10 things, if they did one of these, then they're going to go to 10 different branches, but that's still an authored experience versus an AI experience that's doing something far more than I could predict. All of those are predicated on authored experiences. So if there's, if there's 10 things that you could potentially do, every one of those is predicated on my belief that you might want to do those 10 things. Yeah. And and that's it. Whereas if you have true machine learning, that machine can know so much more about you and how you play and change the game based on that, just like something might change in the real world. Like, mm-hmm. like let's say that I wanted to surprise you. Mm-hmm. I might follow, you know, I I I might follow how you walk through this particular space. And after I've seen you do it 10 times, I might learn that you do this other, you you do this, this thing once every 10 times or something. But I could change your play experience based on that. But that's, 
that's at the, the limits of my human understanding. That's right. Think about what a machine could do. Mm-hmm. What a machine could do if you've been playing again and again and again. So I, I think that there, um, that there's tremendous benefit just from a play point of view and how play can be changed in a truly dynamic way, as well as reducing the pain points for the player. Yeah. Like, absolutely. what if we had? What if we had like? tutorials based on machine learning like a bunch of players are getting stuck here what if we could generate a tutorial on the fly because we've noticed you've trashed yourself three times attempting to do this thing mm-hmm. right that would be you know if game developers would know how much time is put into tutorials oh, it's yeah, an inordinate so amount crucial. of time yeah. And so just imagine if we could do things like tutorials on the fly like you could probably have a whole extra feature in a game if we could get a machine to handle the tutorial. But yeah. yeah, I'm super excited about it. I'm super excited about what it might do for games. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, it, it's a subject that I could talk about for hours. And and I guess the, the one last thing I would just plant, um, you, you talked about a machine, you know, paying attention and learning from your patterns. Um, you know, sentiment analysis is, we're not that far away from that, right? That's yeah. pretty close to a solved problem as well. Now, yes, people have to let the webcam watch them while they're playing or accept the fact that their voice anonymized is going to be uploaded to the cloud and interpreted for, you know, whatever, not not scraped for data to sell you, you know, useless trinkets, but instead scraped for sentiment and then and then trashed. So there is some sort of educating part that that we'll have to we'll have to deal with in terms of getting people comfortable with this idea of being monitored while they play. But assuming that that happens, you can absolutely imagine a game that is dynamically responding not to repetition, right, but 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 to emotion. That the player is starting to get slightly, you know, red in the cheeks, and their frustration level is starting to grow, and you know, dynamically rubber bands the difficulty in order to keep them engaged instead of lapsing out with you know some rage quit or something like that. All of that is is on the horizon as well, and it, it, you it, know- it opens some really interesting possibilities. You know what what I feel, you know, especially when we talk about things like that, it does create challenges for game designers. Mm-hmm. Because in addition to what has changed, in addition to the things we've discussed, we never had this volume of information coming back at us. So what do we do with all that information? How do we respond to that information? You know, I, I think respond is the key word and not react. We don't mm-hmm. want to, we don't want this to become like a trauma unit. There are certainly things in a game where players are uncomfortable, but they're uncomfortable by design. They are not moving, but they're not moving by design. You know, whether if, you know, whether that's a choke point or a camping point or something, uh, and, and maybe you want to, maybe those things want, we want to remove those things, but I, it does, it, it's still, and maybe this will change, but I always see that there will be the need for a human, a, a game designer to look at what's coming back to them and deciding, is that what I wanted? Like uh-huh, train, as, a, as an example, the very first user research, which was accidental that I got was my sister who asked me what I was working on. And I told her I was make, what I was making a game about. And I'll, I'll give you the review she gave me. She said, oh, Brenda, don't do it. <laughs> and I sometimes ask her, like, do you have any other ideas that I just shouldn't make games about? Because that one did really well. <laughs> I mean, what not commercially, not right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I, I sometimes think that 
all of the the data that comes back, there can be, it can just feel overwhelming, you know, that that applause would, su- would suggest that we should turn hockey into boxing. Right. You know, right. if we judge player sentiment. And yep. similarly, similarly, all players in like, in, you know, games as a service, if you ask players, everything should be free. Yeah, Obviously exactly. it should be free, right? Yeah. But that also doesn't support the business model. So, yeah. so it is a challenge. I don't know that we have at this point in time we certainly have built up the wall of data coming back to That's the right. game development team. I do not know that the game development team yet, no. and I'm speaking, of course, for myself, but I think I'm speaking more broadly for many, that the wall of data coming back, we still don't yet have the full ability to interpret what we're getting. I agree. I agree totally. And, and this is why I always come back to this co-authorship once upon a time, making a game was the designer led and the player followed. And then it, it started, it feels like it started to become a little bit more of a dance, right? Where for sure the designer is still, you know, whatever the, I, I don't know much about dance, but like the, I guess the lead, you know, the, the one with the hand on the waist kind of saying, you know, let's go to the left, let's go to the right. But players are now, they're dancing too. And they're sort of saying, I like this and I like that. And I want to do this and I don't want to do that. And so it's a little bit more of a give and take. And I think AI is going to be a third player. It's going to be a third partner dropped in there. And both people, the the designer and the player, are going to have to come to that dance. And all three are going to be dancing together and interacting with each other in different ways. Um, Can't possibly predict what that looks like, but it feels like it's coming. Um, Brenda, this conversation has opened so many doors. I would love to go through all of them, but we are uh, coming up on um, on uh, uh, running out of time. Um, and, and so I, I want to move maybe to um, uh, a closing question, um, which is just very generally, um, are there themes or subjects w- when you signed up? to this podcast and we said, we want to talk to you about the future of entertainment. And you said, oh yeah, that sounds fun. Were the themes or subjects that you thought we were going to explore that we haven't had the chance to? Are there things that you were chomping at the bit to talk about that you want to use the last few minutes we have together to cover? Um, Gosh, you know, if we're talking about game design, I'm just almost always in, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think one thing that is of interest to me, and you know, I keep now saying I'm going to write a book about it. I, I wouldn't hold your breath for that. This isn't a plug because I, I want to write a book about at least 20 different things. But I, I have my own sort of personal archaeological mission going on where I am looking at the role of women specifically in technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and things, you know, a lot of times they'll say, oh, there's not a lot of women in games or you know, uh, it actually started with a challenge with somebody told me that women don't like tech. There's mm. nothing you could do. It started in academia. But that sent me on this fantastic archaeological expedition um, where, you know, f- among other things, like women invented pointers, women invented code, women invented it's the first assembly language, the compiler, women named a, um, the bug, like a computer bug was named by Grace Hopper. So, I've really been getting into that lately, and I've actually started trolling Moby Games, believe it or not, looking oh, for... just looking for women <laughs> just in look, the, Yeah. Yeah, and I even found out that in the early days, women would keep their... They would, for instance, I might release my games under B. Romero. Oh, really? Yeah, so in effort, just, you know, because you don't want to... You don't want to be... Um, 
you don't want to be pushed out because you have, uh, you know, your your name is a is a female name. So I guess that's of interest to me, and I'm, I've really been interested in the last ten years with how diverse games are becoming. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say have become because I don't feel like we're there yet. Mm-hmm. But I've I've had experiences um, in my own career, for instance, where I couldn't play as a female character until 1987. And Leather Goddess is a Phobos of all games. Mm-hmm. Um, or my son, so my son, uh, all my kids are mixed race, and my son wanted to create himself in a game, and he has quite dark skin and my hair. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't make that person in a game. Yeah. In the yeah. game he was playing. Now, mind you, he could adjust his glabella. And I only know that this thing between your nose is called the glabella because of a game. So I think... I I love and I've when I was pitching Empire of Sin and people it was the first time and I've been pitching games for a long time it was the first time that every publisher I talked to said okay so just some questions can you play as a female character yeah and I actually so I told them I said in fact I don't have gender in my game so you can play as whatever the you can be whoever you want to be whoever you are you can be that person um, and there's characters who represent everybody. But it was the first time I'd heard publishers consistently asking that question. And that was really heartened. That, that it was just, it was a wonderful thing to hear. And mm-hmm. I don't, I know they weren't just asking me because John was also pitching and he was getting asked those questions as well. So I, I do think that it is important to see yourself in what you want to do. It is important, you know, when we think about the player and who the player is, I spent the first, seven years, six years of my career rescuing a princess. Right, yeah, exactly. Right? I want to rescue a hot prince. That's yeah. what I want to do. Um, so anyway, that that I think, the diversity coming into games, and there's loads of people who are like, oh, there's actually there's not loads of people. I know that there are some people who, for whom that's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. But I just imagine, like, if we applied that to any other form of entertainment, how incredibly dull that entertainment would be. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and that's a really hopeful note. Um, I think you're right. Games are taking diversity more seriously. I think maybe the industry still has some work to do there. But I think that now that little girls or gender creative kids or, you know, whatever can find themselves in games, the games that they play, to me, that gives hope that in 10 years, they might be able to find roles for themselves inside the industry as well. Oh, I totally agree. Absolutely. I mean, if you see yourself in a game, you can see yourself in the industry that creates them. If you can't see yourself in that game, that tells you something about the industry that made it. Yeah, you're right. Well, I think that is a fantastic place to um, wrap up. This has been fun. This has been entertaining, educational. This has been inspiring. Uh, I've, I've really appreciated this chat, Brenda. I've learned a lot talking with you and I've found someone who, uh, in many ways sort of sees the world through the same colored lenses that I do. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. And that's it for this latest installment of our Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Ben Mattis, and I'd like to thank each and every one of you for sharing your time with us. So far on this podcast, we've explored themes like narrative and games and linear media like movies and television, convergence, evolution of design and play, AI, serious games, and more. There's a lot of exciting content just around the corner. 
So if you're curious about the major themes that'll shape the future of games and entertainment, smash that bell, as the cool kids say. Subscribe to the podcast and stay tuned for more episodes and awesome guests in the coming weeks and months. In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about Rovio, you can reach out to me directly at podcast at rovio.com. Alternatively, we're hiring for a number of roles at Rovio right now. You can find all about our open positions at rovio.com slash careers. Thanks again and bye. <laughs>